Today's scripture reading is from Romans 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, sin reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as though the disobedience of the one man, the many, were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many, will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that... Just as sin reigned in death, so also great grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Painador. Happy belated New Year uh, to you all. I have not been in this space for about five or six weeks now, as you probably have noticed, um, and so I'm rusty, no doubt, and uh, you'll bear with me this morning as I remember how to do what I'm supposed to be doing every week. Uh, Thanks to all who filled in and gave me some sweet time off and relaxing with my family. I trust that all the rest of you are in full recovery mode now from all the festivities of the holidays. Not so with my family. We actually have three January birthdays in the Bergen household, and so we just keep the ridiculous eating train right on rolling all the way until February. So I consider that part of my gift to you during this season, that there's a little bit more pastor to go around um, and serve our entire congregation. Um, So if you need something, just ask. Actually, this past Wednesday was my oldest son Micah's eighth birthday, Uh, He turned eight. Some of you know Micah. Micah was born just before we started the church. And so we always know how old our church is and can gauge the maturity level of our church with one quick glance at my oldest son. It gives you some idea of just where we're at, if you know Micah uh, at all. Um, (laughs) He's a joy, actually. Um, I got up very early on Wednesday morning on his birthday to make our 7 a.m elder meeting. And normally when I get up on Wednesdays, I'm the only one who's up. Uh, But when I came downstairs, Micah was already up and he was sitting in the kitchen staring into this LED lit blue ant farm that his grandma had sent him 
a couple of days before for his birthday. We had to open it immediately. Couldn't wait for his birthday because there were live ants inside. It was quite a family affair transferring the ants from the little vial they came in into the farm without them being dispersed throughout our house. They're fire ants, of course. Um, (laughs) At one point during the transfer, as the ants were climbing up the sides of the farm, my wife thought it prudent to blow furiously toward the farm in hopes of sending them back down. And, you know... (laughs) Hilarity ensued. Um, But Micah was already up and he was staring into the ant farm and he pointed out that two of the ants had already died in as many days being in our home. And so we got to talking about birth and death, as you do when you are looking at fire ants on your kitchen table, (laughs) decapitating their falling comrades um, on your son's birthday, of course. And as we were having this conversation about birth and death, Micah, at some point in the conversation, reflected that he wished that he could remember being in mom's tummy. That's what he said. I wish I could remember when I was in mom's tummy. And I said, well, if you could remember being in mom's tummy, all you would remember is total darkness. And he looked at me without skipping a beat and said, no. What about when she opened her mouth? (laughs) (laughs) Kids, kids, kids thinking (laughs) total darkness. Come on, dad, have a little bit of imagination here, right? Um, So I got to thinking, you know, what if we could imagine that? What if we could imagine life before birth, life in the womb, as it were, or life before all of this, life before all of these relationships, life before all of the needs that are represented in this room, life before all the stuff that's happening all the time. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a womb-like life? The sort of life where every need is always met and it's always warm and there's no real danger to speak of. In many ways, that sounds like a preferable life to the one that we spend our time, our waking time on here. My wife and I, Keisha and I were actually able to attend a play a few years back at the Goodman that dealt with this very idea. The play was called Smokefall. An actor who used to attend our church was the understudy for the lead, and he got us tickets. And the entire second act of this play actually depicts the womb of a mother that is occupied by twins. And these twins are listening to all of the dysfunction in their family that's happening outside, out there, and having a conversation about whether they would rather stay in the womb or enter into that dysfunctional world. And they hear enough through their mother to come to the conclusion that they're going to do everything in their power to resist this forthcoming trip down the birth canal. And in fact, one of the twins goes so far as to use the umbilical cord 
to ensure that he will never experience and never know any other life except for womb life. Now, that's a pretty gruesome thing to watch depicted on stage, but I think that at some point, every one of us harbors that kind of a thought. Every one of us has something along the lines of Jimmy Stewart's thought in It's a Wonderful Life. I suppose it would have been better if I had just never been born at all. Right? I think that's a fairly universal experience for us at some point along the way to harbor a fantasy that the world might have been better if we weren't in it, or it might have been better for me to just never have had to go through all of this, to never have had to experience all of this hardship and need and relationship and brokenness, or at least to come to the conclusion, I would like to climb back into the womb and start over. I want a second chance, if not to never be born at all. Because things here, all of this, everything that we experience in our life, it's broken. Nothing here works quite right. Chiefly us. We're broken. We don't work quite right. We make dreadful missteps that hurt other people routinely. And we are the victims routinely of the dreadful missteps of others. Just think of all of the people that you have hurt in your life and then quadruple it to account for all the ones that you never knew you hurt. Oftentimes our sin is like photobombs. We unwittingly wreak havoc on the picture of someone else's life without ever even knowing it. And that person then has to look at that picture for the rest of the time that they do, wondering what this albino Viking is doing in the background. Or fill in whatever you are. God played a few tricks on me. But we've been messing up each other's life pictures like this from the beginning. This is the oldest human pastime, is to step on each other's toes, to cause hurt and pain in each other's lives, to bring ruin and destruction into each other's lives. We've been doing it since humanity was first formed. And here's why. It's actually paradoxical why. We do it because we are all convinced that we know how to live rightly. That's actually what leads us into this hurtful way of being. Because we're all convinced that we are qualified arbiters of the path of our story, of the path of our life, that we can be trusted with making the choices and decisions that direct our steps. We're convinced that we know how to find the good life. That we can be our own Lord. That we can run the show. That's the original human folly, of course. That's the story of the garden. 
that we read in the scriptures. Did God really say, who is God anyway to tell me how to live my life or to direct the order of my steps? Don't I know better? But in fact, the whole of human history, to anyone who cares to look, is one giant pile of evidence that we don't know better. There are ruinous consequences abounding in every age and every generation because of the sin, the misdeeds of us. And we are all collectively and individually responsible for it. We all contribute to it. We all participate in it. We're starting this new year, many of you know, zooming in on some particular chapters, the central particular chapters of Paul's great letter to the Romans, chapters 5 through 8 of this great New Testament book. And I want you to listen to how the Apostle Paul in chapter 5, in the middle of chapter 5, speaks of this problem of human folly, this problem of human sin. He writes this, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam says, we've been sinning from the beginning. The prototypical human being, Adam, the Adam, the first man, when humanity was first formed, from that very beginning, sin entered into the world and the consequences of sin entered into the world. Death, destruction, ruin, chaos, hurt, pain, all of the things associated with human sin came into the world. The pollution of the world came into the world with that first sin from Adam and that every human since, every child of the Adam, every person in the image of the Adam has followed in his footsteps and sinned in like manner and brought ruin and destruction and pollution into the world. We are again all collectively and individually responsible for the heartache and pain and ruin and destruction that we see all around us. And Paul says that this was just as true before God gave us his law as it is after. In other words, there was as much sinning and destruction in the world before God gave us the Ten Commandments as there has been in the centuries and millennia that followed when God gave this great law, the Ten Commandments, to his prophet Moses at Sinai. The only real difference between the sinning happening before the giving of the law and the sinning happening after the giving of the law is that we are now less ignorant of it. The law has this exposing quality to it. It 
tells us that we're sinning in ways we didn't even know were sin. It helps us to see the extent of our folly. Right? We don't even know that so much of what we do is destructive. The law tells us, for example, not to covet. But coveting actually feels right to us, doesn't it? When we look at those in our society, when people have looked at those in society who have much, the quote-unquote one percenters, we despise those people. And we demand that we have a larger portion of their pie. That feels like justice to us. That feels like righteousness to us. We need the law to tell us that's just good old-fashioned covetousness. That's all it is. The law exposes things that we think are righteous as sinful. It robs us of the ignorance of our sin. It holds us account. It shoves our sin in our face. That's why God gave us his law, to expose us, to rip the covers off, as it were. You think you're trustworthy to run your own life? Hold yourself up to my law. See if indeed this is true. What you think is right actually destroys, is actually destructive and ruinous. Your gauge of right and wrong is haywire. You don't know what good is. I don't know what good is. Our assessment of good and evil is off. We don't know our way into the good life. We don't know the ways that make for peace. We're lost, every one of us. And all of the best human efforts to find a better way forward, all of our moral reasoning and our justice campaigns and our ethical ideologies and our political dreams, all of the best things that people do to try and solve this problem of human folly is, as Karl Barth says, a most precarious attempt to imitate the flight of a bird. People cannot fly because bird flight is not in our nature. Likewise, people cannot produce peaceful societies because peace is not in our nature. We are disobedient by nature. We go our own way. We're convinced of our own rightness, that we know the way, that we can find the way. The truth is, we need an external rescue. We need something from outside of us to rescue us. The rescue that humanity longs for will not bubble up from within humanity. It will not bubble up from within our own hearts. It has to come from beyond our shores. Something has to break into our history, break into our story. We have to be interrupted. We can't find our way out of the dark that we have created. We only add to it when we try. And the great announcement of Paul's letter to the Romans, of the whole book of Romans, is 
arrival. The rescue is here. The rescue has come in this one man, Jesus Christ. Paul writes, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Read that again. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. I want you to hear what Paul is saying here. He's saying Adam first brought sin into the world, and we all followed in Adam's footsteps. And as we followed in Adam's footsteps, we experienced the broken and ruinous life of Adam. In other words, Adam led us into his way, and as we walked in his way, we experienced the consequences of his way. But Paul says there's a new Adam, as it were. There's a final Adam, as it were. There's a new one man, a new first man, a new prototypical man who has broken into the world. And this free gift to the world is not like the trespass. There's a discontinuity between Adam and Christ. Because with Adam, he led us into sin. And as we sinned, we experienced the same consequences as Adam. But with Christ, as we were sinning, He breaks in and brings righteousness and justification to us. You see, it's not the case that we have to follow in the footsteps of Jesus in order to experience the blessing of Jesus. We had to follow in the footsteps of Adam in order to experience the curse of Adam. He led us into that curse. But we don't have to follow in the footsteps of Jesus in order to experience the life and blessing of Jesus. The free gift is not like the trespass. Jesus broke in among our many transgressions, our many sins, and brought justification and life. He lavished favor on us freely. It was a free gift. In other words, we don't have to walk like Jesus in order to receive God's favor. Jesus said, I already received God's favor for you. I already lived the human life that this world needs for you. I've already walked in perfect obedience. I've already known the Father. I've already had the blessing of the Father. I now give this to you freely in the middle of your transgressions. I interrupt the brokenness of this world with the favor of God. It's yours freely. Drink it up. I have finished the work. I have completed the task. I have created a new humanity for you. I have forged a path for you. This is a finished work for you to step into. A finished work for you to rest within. A finished work for you to slump into, to be caught in. 
You begin the Christian life with the favor and blessing of God upon you. You do not scratch and claw your way to follow in the footsteps of Jesus that you might earn the favor and blessing of God like him. No, it's yours from the beginning. It's yours from day one. That's why we baptize you on the day you profess faith. Or in some traditions, right after you're born. Because when you start is when the favor and blessing of God is on you, not when you finish. You now live out of this fullness, not up into it. You don't need to climb your way up into the blessing and favor of God. It's yours. Bask in it. Live in it. Rejoice in it. Drink deeply from it. It does not depend on your performance. It does not depend on you following Jesus perfectly, matching the life of Jesus perfectly. The life, the perfect human life, is finished. It's already been created. It's already been completed. It's been handed to you. Walk ye in it. Without fear, God will not turn his back on you. The favor of God is already accomplished for you. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus has overcome the broken nature of humanity. He has forged a new way for us and he has poured it out on all people this gift has been given church it is ours christ's life is ours all the favor of god has been secured in jesus so many religious types christians often fall into this way of thinking where we believe that the salvation of God, the rescue of God, the external rescue of God was given at Sinai rather than Calvary. Right? Was given when God gave us the law. We treat God's law as though it were our rescue, as though it were our salvation. Okay, I can see that my way doesn't work. I can see that me being Lord of my own life leads to ruin and destruction. I'm honest enough to notice this mountain of evidence that indicts all of humanity. And so now when God gives me this law, he gives me these instructions for life, this manual for life, as it were, about how I am to live, shouldn't I then just follow these instructions and find my way into new life? Shouldn't I just follow this law? That would be like reading a book about how birds fly and then thinking that you can do it. That's what we do when we read the law. Now, reading a book about how birds fly, that's a great thing to do. I recommend it. (laughs) 
It's a marvel, actually, how birds fly. Okay. And in the same way, reading God's law is a wonderful thing to do. I recommend it. It's a marvel to consider what a beautiful and perfect and obedient humanity would be. But we can no more turn ourselves into obedient children than we can turn ourselves into an eagle. We do not have that power within us to transform ourselves. We are disobedient by nature. Instructions telling us how to be obedient won't get the job done. The law is completely powerless to produce the beautiful life that it describes. It describes a beautiful life for us. It's a lovely life. It's God showing us what life with him would be. But this law winds up being only for us an expose. It undresses us. We are children of Adam. Obedience is not in our nature. Paul addresses this idea in another one of his letters, his great letter to the Galatians, where in many of the same themes that Paul is meaning to intimate to the Romans come to the fore for the people of Galatia. And when he's writing there, he is likewise writing about this free gift, this rescue of the one man. And Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 3, why then the law? If Jesus is the rescue, if God's intention from the beginning was to carve out a new humanity in his own son, to fashion a completed work for us to live in, why then the law? Paul begins to answer his own question. It was added because of transgressions. That is to say, the law shows us our sin. It shows us who we are. It shows us our brokenness. It shows us our defiance. It shows us our disobedience. It shows us our need for the rescue of this one man. And incidentally, it serves as a restraint to some degree to prevent us from killing one another. But look down in Galatians 3, just a couple of verses later, verse 21, Paul asks, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. God's law is powerless to produce the life that it describes. It is not our salvation. It is our indicter. It charges us and convicts us as guilty before God. It shows us our need for a whole different way of being human. Back in Romans, Paul closes chapter 5 this way. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Not to lead us into righteous living. The law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
That's enough right there, isn't it? Any person who is weighed down. Under the weight of your own folly. Grace abounds for you. You are covered. You are forgiven. You are righteous. You are holy. You are favored by God. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are not capable of pulling our humanity up out of this nosedive. We're not birds. We don't know how to fly. Our efforts only make it worse. Our attempts to clean ourselves up with the law just wind up being more insidious forms of sin. As Bart writes in his great commentary on the book of Romans, grace is not grace if he that receives it is not under judgment. Righteousness is not righteous if it be not reckoned to the sinner. Life is not life if it be not life from death. And God is not God if he be not the end of men. Church, there is one who has ascended into the heavens. There is one man who has lived the life that pleases God. There is one and one only who has proved to be an obedient child. God has a perfect son, and he is not looking for replacements, but he is inviting everyone to live in him, to step into the finished work of Christ, to rest in the finished work of Christ, to be redefined by Christ and Christ alone, and to live it out. Church, Christ is all. Receive him and live. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious to us. Thank you for meeting us in the mess that we have made and providing a true and real hope in your Son. Lord, teach us by faith to receive him. Teach us by faith to trust him. Fill us with his spirit that we would know where we stand before you and walk with you all the days of our life and beyond. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.